welcome back to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Rogers. Uh, on the episode today, we're going to hear from Karen Reed. Karen was one of the speakers uh, in a breakout session at the recent Our City Toronto conference. And um, Karen, uh, I first met her actually at her home, uh, Parker House in East Vancouver, Several years ago, uh, I was visiting Vancouver and uh, went and met Karen and learned about the ministry that she does there in her neighborhood. And uh, so we're going to hear all about some of the things that uh, she's involved in. And uh, as uh, the episode uh, begins with her, she's talking about what happened in Gander, Newfoundland uh, back September 11th, 2001 when uh, the world was in crisis after the Twin Towers were hit and suddenly there were um, 7,000 people stranded at the Gander Airport and uh, that uh, uh, community opened up their homes and people did everything they could to take care uh, of the strangers in their midst. So let's go to uh, Karen's session now and uh, this is this is a rich one. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it as much as I did. In Gander, <clears throat> Newfoundland, which, if you remember, it became host to the world. 38 jetliners were rerouted mid-air, and that community became the recipient of 6,600 global guests. Residents rallied in unprecedented ways that have been lots of storytelling about that, of their unbelievable welcome and warmth of hospitality. I've been to Gander and I've seen that Newfoundland hospitality in action. But it's always stunned me on how powerful that was for people's experience. I, I, you hear stories about um, people that stayed in homes that still are connecting on an annual basis. It was such a bond in that crisis. It's that generous hospitality. Radical really means going back to its root. Um, that radical, biblical, generous hospitality is profoundly subversive. Having the power to break down fears and status and ethnic barriers often enabling a reorientation at a systemic level that can change entire social landscape. Um, it was really the lifeblood of the early church. Here, as we read in the New Testament, we see how much there was just walls of hostility between people groups. We think we are polarized now. Mm -hmm. I mean, you saw and you read in the New Testament the walls of hostility toward people groups, and radical hospitality was used subversively to reorient uh, a whole society at a systemic level. And I think it's to be the mark of the church again. You know, if the essence of the gospel is the radical hospitality of Christ, the scandalous good news that everyone's invited to the table, it's to experience the lavish love and forgiveness of God. And so it's been a season for me to kind of take serious these primary commandments. We know these scriptures, 
that we are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Jesus is saying that the first and greatest commandment is, the second one is equally important. And so, um, the idea that they're equal commandments, I would suggest because they're mutually dependent. That all of God's truths are expressions of these two commandments. If you love well, you won't covet or steal or slander or gossip, etc. They're equally important because they're mutually dependent. And so to love God is to love neighbor. We often say love God, love others, which is certainly true. But Jesus uh, very much narrowed it into the specific of neighbor. To enjoy um, your neighbor is the way we enjoy God. To listen to our neighborhood is a way that we listen to God. So this has been um, texts that have really just uh, landed on me to reflect, to say, to seriously live into this in my daily life. Um, if, if God's agenda, let me just come back here a bit. Um, one of the primary conversions for me in these last 12 years has been around landing hard around God's agency. That God is the agent who's bringing his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. It's not us strategizing and um, creating things that then we ask God to bless. This is God's deal. It's his global project that he is advancing his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And if um, really the essence of the gospel is that the kingdom in full culmination will be that all people and all places flourish. For, flourish with shalom, it's the kingdom of shalom. And, and his kingdom is unstoppable. Do you believe that? No, no matter what the newscast is saying. You know, shalom, um, if you have been a student of scripture for a while, you know it's that large concept. It encompasses wholeness and safety and fullness and justice. It's the absence of war and strife and pain and suffering. It's a picture of lives that thrive. It's why Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came. And his, his work, it's, it's God's work as the primary agent that's bringing the renewal of all things, the restoration of all things. And he's out ahead of us. It's his deal, and inviting us to participate and join in with what he's doing. I live in a 108-year-old house, and I'm always reminded there was a lot of life before I ever got there. Um, there was, in my neighborhood, a lot of God activity before I ever got there, prayer activity. There'll be a lot of life after uh, my life, but those old growth trees that built my house. <laughs> um, and so I'm reminded, almost kind of the, I've come to almost lean toward an Aboriginal view about the land, that you can't own land. You know, you steward it for a season. I own a mortgage. <laughs> um, and, and so this idea that it's, this is God's deal, that I'm then coming in 
and joining in with what he's doing. And he invites all of us. And so this deep confidence that God is invasively active and creative in our context right now. Do you believe that? Yeah. Aggressively and invasively active. He's a fiercely engaged God. The primacy of God's agency that I would invite you to join me in, in continuing to reflect more deeply on that and how we often will sideline that to human agency. Um, also, you see throughout scripture that the spirit worked, you know, before Pentecost, the spirit came on particular people at particular places and particular times. Then the spirit was poured out. And God always works in a particular. You know, one of my little pet peeves is when someone gets up in front of, you know, 5,000 people and go, I love you all. No, you can't. <laughs> you can't love until you know someone particularly. And uh, um, so, so God always works in the local, in the particular. The only way we can discern what God is doing is in our particular local environment. Um, so this uh, emphasis calls for a very different posture where you're listening to God by listening to what's happening around you. Uh, if discernment becomes more important than innovation, Alan Roxburgh says, I haven't read any of his work. So I think the local neighborhood is the best context in which people flourish. Um, Wendell Berry, one of my favorite writers, he says, no matter how much one may love the world as a whole and can live fully in it, only by living responsibly in some small part of it, where we live and who we live there with define the terms of our relationships to the world and to humanity. We thus come again to the paradox that one can become whole only by the responsible acceptance of one's partiality. Just a bit of my story. Um, I pastored for 21 years at Broadway Church in Vancouver. And um, we were one of the first alpha courses that popped up in the country. And we did large alphas. And that began, there was a number of things over a number of years that converged for me. But alphas gave me um, an experience of seeing people's first impression of church not sitting like this, but around a table. Um, and seeing that their common humanity uh, was elevated over their differences. And so then, 12 years ago, Mission Canada asked if I would consider pioneering a role as kind of a mission, um, an urban missionary, which we dropped that term very quickly. <laughs> but the idea was to embed into a neighborhood and um, just to seek to experiment and join with what God is doing. And so this process reoriented, required me reorienting my entire way of life within the proximity of the neighborhood. I have lived most of my life on adrenaline and deadlines. I commuted to Broadway, you know, 20 to 30 minutes by car. Um, I was very productive. I had very little margin in my life. And it didn't take me long to learn that you couldn't be present with people and be busy. Mm -hmm. And so 
I spent the first couple of years learning a radically foreign rhythm. I started to play with the idea. Jesus seemed to minister primarily in serendipitous moments that we read in the Gospels. And so I started to wonder, could I order my life that believed that was possible in the 21st century? I, you know, I'm old enough that I'm wary of the best that we can bring to the table in terms of our experience and expertise and education. I want that much more of the kingdom where Jesus, the land lover, tells a professional fisherman where to fish. And so my own longing for that. And so I had to keep uh, saying, I need more margin. I need more margin. And so now my litmus test is if I'm irritated when I become interrupted, I know I've moved toward busy zone. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's more than unhealthy. I'll just sit and make one comment around busyness. Um, because it is, I, I do think it's an area that we are outwitted by the enemy in our time. Walter Brueggemann, one of my loves of my life, he's an Old Testament scholar in his 80s, and he says that, you know, the kingdom of the world is the kingdom of scarcity, right? Uh, that's what all marketing is about. You need more, bigger, newer. And uh, it leads to fear and isolation, and it breeds consumerism. That's the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God, what, is a kingdom of abundance. You have everything you need. You know, all of our Sabbath practices and scriptures are to reorient us, to remind us, oh yeah, we live out of the kingdom of abundance. I think busyness leans us to live out of scarcity. So I moved only five minutes from the church, but um, we never penetrated. Most of my ministry life was around evangelism and discipleship. We never penetrated in this community. This is called, <clears throat> it's part of East Vancouver. It's called Commercial Drive. Um, 25, it used to be Little Italy, 25 coffee shops within walking distance of my house were the true coffee songs. <laughs> uh, about, um, 15 microbreweries and unlimited amount of pot shops, just to give you a little picture. <laughs> it has the highest concentration of artists in the country. <clears throat> and I moved from how to get people into a church service to how in God's name could I belong to them. <clears throat> um, if the good news of God's global project is that his kingdom is of heaven is coming, and that the flourishing of all people in all places. If they're no longer coming to us to explore, we must go and be among. That's really what incarnation means. When we talk about incarnational ministry, it's the idea of Jesus moving into the neighborhood. He incarnated himself in flesh and blood into the neighborhood. And so incarnation means that we are just embedding and moving into a neighborhood and um, intentionally. And so the church, uh, Leslie Newbigin, um writes about this, that the church primarily is to be a foretaste, a sign, and a witness of that alternative kingdom of heaven. So it's a, a community of people embodying the gospel in their lives together that provide others 
far from God, a taste of this alternative narrative, this alternative kingdom of God. So I want to spark our imaginations to think about what that requires for people to come up close and personal to see how you two, who might be living next door to each other or in the same house, how do you handle conflict? How do you handle your money? How do you handle grief and stress and your time? It's, it's letting people up close and personal to give them a taste, a foretaste, a witness of a, a sign of another way to live. And so if the majority are no longer coming to us, we have to go and be among. It's this call to be a tangible kingdom where we embody the ways of Jesus in our life together. Oswald Chambers says that one of the most amazing revelations of God comes to us when we learn that it is in the everyday of things of life that we realize the magnificent deity of Jesus. It is bounded though. You know, if theology of place, which I think is a natural corrective for the church, if we restore a theology of place, you know when the internet came out, um, part of the early marketing was that it enabled you to live above geography. What a lie that is. You know, if, if part of, if, if really at the essence of good news is that we become more fully human, that's what flourishing is, that we become more fully human, and we're to join in in rehumanizing things that have been dehumanizing. You know, so much in our world has moved us to transactional relationships uh, where we objectify people. And so the evidence that God is among us is where we things are rehumanized. So you see this in Jesus' life. Every time, you know, either uh, marginalized people were ostracized or children or women Jesus is rehumanizing and bringing that in in how he's living. <clears throat> and so, and it's in particular, it needs to have bounds. Walter Brueggemann talks about that uh, the core human need is not meaningless, but rootlessness. And so I'm always asking, how can I deepen my value of this and my practices of it? it you know, theology that's in, embodied in the everyday local ordinary you know, Christianity is, is far more a lifestyle than a system of beliefs. You know, one of the things that happens in, in post-modernity is that we've become so cerebral. Your practices have become so cerebral, and James Smith really addresses this well as a theologian, where he said, you know, that we're formed primarily by what we love, not by information. So he draws this beautiful liturgy of the mall. If you went to the mall every day as a practice, what desire would that form in you? What? Spending, consuming, buying. And so if we want to nurture our love for God, it's how do we give, it's awakened in me, how do I give more attention 
to my practices. That my beliefs form practices that nurture my love. And, um, and it's our daily lives. Brueggemann also, I remember I was in a conversation with him in a room with Peter Block a few years ago. And he said, you know, the Bible is not primarily about spirituality. It's about materiality. What we do with our body, money, sex, relationships. And we have, I've even kind of stopped, do I, even, do I want to be recorded saying this? <laughs> I've tried to re diminish my use of the term spiritual. Like, why do we say spiritual disciplines? We kind of reject dualism, you know, of separating spiritual and material, because we know they're interconnected. How you handle your money affects you spiritually. Yes. How your morality, you know, it all is interconnected. So all of my disciplines <laughs> are integrated to think more holistically. And, and I think there's so many practices that we have that move us toward separating material and spiritual. Um, so those are things that I've tried to give more attention to, to say, how do I integrate that? I, I didn't even realize how fragmented my life was until I moved into Parker House. And we call it Parker House because it's on Parker Street. And so it was a way to a firm place. And, you know, I drove, I lived in my car. <clears throat> I sold my car a number of years ago. I now bike and walk mostly. So I can live 90% of my life within a 30 minute walk. So it's been a very intentional move to go much deeper and, and to root in. Um, connection, and, and this is um, Alan Hirsch that talks about um, the, the need to connect it with, you know, in our places and to restore the historic nature of neighborhood. If you've read any of Jane Jacobs' work from what she influenced in New York, that really life happened on the steps of a, of a walk-up house. And, and she took on all the high developers that were killing community with all these high-rises. Uh, that's kingdom issues, you know. And now there's been all this research that's been done. The Vancouver Foundation, which is the largest community foundation in North America, started research in 2011. They've repeated it. That the number one uh, issue in Vancouver, in every major city, is what? Loneliness and isolation. It's the problem underlying all these other problems. And it's being addressed on the ground with local people that are building community and weaving a social fabric. You know, I'm reminded that I can't be the most trusted person in my neighborhood unless I'm known. It's taken me a long time to be known. And uh, I had one neighbor a couple years ago, he hosted a political small dinner and um, with one of the party leaders and um, I had a Syrian friend that was going to cater it, and so I was there helping her. And when he introduced me to this um, political leader, um, she said to me, oh, you're, um, you're a neighbor. And my friend said, oh, no, no, she's the neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> so what would it take to become the neighbor that is helping people to weave a, a social fabric? <clears throat> 
So I um, moved uh, to raise funds, which I said I would never do in my life, give up salary. And uh, I had moved into this house in the city, so I can kind of live like a student when I need to, but I had hard costs, and so, you know, it's amazing what desperation bursts and creativity. <laughs> and so I had four bedrooms in this 100-year-old house, and I quickly added two more, <laughs> and uh, started to open them up to um, people to rent. Airbnb was just arriving on the scene. I had one room available for that. And I discovered this need to kind of hold space for people in transition, what many call postmodern homeless. And I eventually opened up all the rooms and invited people to stay as long as they want. And then just started one by one connecting with my neighbors. Alan Hirsch says that to connect in a neighborhood, you need proximity and frequency of encounters and spontaneity. So I would sit on my porch here. I've taken that tree down now. and. I could talk to five neighbors before I finish my coffee in the morning. It's only about 10 feet from the sidewalk. It's a popular walking street. Um, I've now had over 250 people live with me in the last 11 years. People in need are moving into town. I would just pray, 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 and ask God to edit. <laughs> and uh, I don't even have, I have a lofted bedroom. I don't even have a door. And I lived alone a good amount of my life. So it's a miracle of grace that I love this. I would never go back. I, I wrestled for a number of years, was it even right for Christians to live alone uh, as a communal people? That again, it's something that we don't even know how malformed we've become. In our, um, you know, I was, I was formed in a way to value self-sufficiency and independence. But what a delusion they are. You know, we often pray before a meal uh, to say, as a way to lean into gratitude, to remind ourselves, that, to push away from self-sufficiency. That food reminds us we're dependent on farmers. I do have a food garden, but I can't grow all my food. And truckers and marketer, you know, market people. We, we're dependent on others, and it's a good thing interdependency. And we and food is sacred. It's become, you know, life is forfeited, either plant or animal, to sustain us. What does that mimic? The Lord's Supper. Eugene Peterson came to see every meal as a Eucharistic meal, where Jesus is the guest and host. To see food, not just as fuel for your body, but as sacred, and to honor that. So it was a slow process. I was hospitable, but I hadn't really forged a lifestyle of hospitality. Mm -hmm. Where really, um, in the early church, it was a lifestyle of hospitality. Communal cultures we have to learn from. Lifestyle of hospitality. It took me a number of years to learn to, and to train neighbors. I would keep my door unlocked during the day. Now I have enough neighbors who will just walk in and put the tea kettle on. Building trust. I, I put Adirondack chairs. I have, I have eight feet of lawn, you know, from the sidewalk to the street. And we put Adirondack chairs down on, on that space. Don't lock them down. So again, trying to subversely push against the narrative of fear. Nobody's ever taken them. I have one lady that walks by every day. She picks up her groceries, and I'm halfway between her shop and her house. She always sits there for a while. I have another kid that's on the spectrum. Still doesn't talk, and he's like eight. 
and he sits in there often for a half an hour in the day. He's a neighbor. So those kind of place-making practices that you're pushing against the narrative, the dominant narrative, and, and subverting it with the, um, the narrative of the kingdom of God, abundance, generosity, no fear. Everyone's invited to the table. Um, a few years ago, I began to evolve the house into an intentional community house. I discovered quickly that I couldn't be busy and be present, so I had to learn these radically foreign rhythms, and um, I would never go back. I didn't realize how fragmented my life was until I started to integrate it. <clears throat> there is no shortcuts to uh, loving your neighbor. Radical hospitality is profoundly subversive. It's the essence of the gospel. Um, and it was the lifeblood of the early church. It always includes strangers. It wasn't primarily to friends and family, like we've often reduced it down to. I remember a couple women, I started these student nights, and twice I've had people show up at the door saying that God invited through the grapevine and saying, I just came to meet the woman who invites strangers in her home. Wow. It's just so upside down. Now, some of you from some cultures, you go, that's normative. But it's become so bizarre here. We need to restore it uh, as kingdom people, as normative, that we restore humanity, that, w that we awaken that back up. Um, and it's mutually transformative. You know, Jeremiah 21, 29, when the Judeans were taken captive and in this pagan city, and instead of hunkering down, God says, actually, I orchestrated this, and you're to plant gardens and seek the welfare of the city for your own welfare. So when we seek to be a blessing, to seek to love well, which is how you live well, right? It, that's how we're renewed and flourish. We flourish, others flourish. It's a communal process. Christine Pohl, if you want to read, I think she does the best theology of hospitality. She's written on community, and she's also written on hospitality. And hers, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality is a Christian tradition. She says, hospitality is less a task than it is a way of living our lives and sharing ourselves. Christian hospitality begins with worship and gratitude to God and is cultivated over a lifetime. It emerges from a willingness to make time and space for people. And that required a whole reorientation of, of my rhythm of life, my lifestyle. And so I had to think about, am I the Messiah <laughs> that will bring the transformation of my city? Or is this God's deal? And I have no clue, and I'm just a call to be faithful to do the next step. There's no shortcuts. People often say, just tell me what to do. Because <laughs> um, every context is different. And we, we are um, embracing this full immersion, this, this embodiment that we inhabit the whole story in our neighborhood. 
um, at points I, you know, you, you experiment with lots of different things. I did community kitchens uh, with a group of refugees. Um, and, you know, I started learning how to grow food. I have chickens. I was in my, it's a city lot. Our roof lines touch, you know. I'm, it's only 33 by 120. But high density food growing is really popular in our neighborhood. So that was all a learning process. And there's something very about connecting to the land. We're really disconnected often from our food. And also, and it's a good thing. Everybody should learn how to grow something. And uh, there's so many images about, I had housemates this year that had never planted anything, so I had them all plant rows of something. And there's just something about getting your hand in the dirt that's, that's enables often a supernatural experience for people. We're so removed from that. And then to watch things grow and then picking your food for a meal, it's, um, you, you start to realize the sacredness of it and how much work goes into it and that you can't bring life. You know, I can plant and water, but I don't bring life. I can poison it, you know, I can neglect it. You're, you're just reminded, God alone brings life. You're, you're the midwife. You might be the gardener. But God alone brings life. If things get sunk into the dirt and dark and you can't see anything, it's activate that something's going to come out. I planted my garlic last November. It's just starting to sprout up. It's this amazing thing that reminds you of the rhythms of God. So it's been a season of a very slow conversion towards slower living and uh, or taking serious that, that this is not an option that all of us are called to love well by loving our neighbor well as the expression primarily of how we love God. <coughs> and so it's been this slow conversion towards slower living. If you uh, ever get the chance to watch, it's a short film, <coughs> 20 minutes, called um, Slow Godspeed. And it's a, it's a story of a pastor in the US that went to Scotland to study and then ended up taking a parish there. And his radical conversion about how they viewed um, church ministry. And basically, the average human can walk three minutes a minute, three miles a minute. Or, is that right? And, or it might be the reverse. Yeah, one mile in three minutes. And that, that, um, that most of us, that that's God's speed that you can only move at the pace of being known. And most of us have to slow down to catch up to God. So, um, it's, you know, now most of my life is shared. <laughs> it's uh, car and resources and house and it's, it's hard and beautiful and I would never go back. Uh, we share all of our meals, um, and um, I, I have been always the oldest. I have been uh, really interested in having intergenerational. Now there's times, I like just my peer group of mature people. I've had a lot of, tw mostly 20-somethings or 30s in their 30s in the house. But uh, a family is not made up of an affinity group. In fact, I was just listening to a lecture 
a while ago, a man that started something called cogenerational. And that in 1900, the age strata was from 70 down to kids. In 2010, it was equal, every age group. For the first time in history, we have five generations in the workforce. At the same time, we're the most age-segregated society in history. And I've contributed to that. Anyone that was a part of the church growth movement, the church has contributed to that by organizing around affinity groups. We, I think it's another way that we need to push back of dehumanizing practices. There's this movement of needing to um, shift. The other interesting stat is that half of the kids born after 2020 in the developing world will live to 100. So, so people over 50, <laughs> Uh, you know, that at, at the turn of the century, there was only children and adults. And then as they moved away from one-room schoolhouses, they had to nuance children to adolescents and teenagers and preteens and young adults. That he's saying the same thing needs to happen now for people over 50, to nuance. They offer grants for people over 60, uh, entrepreneurs wanting to start businesses. Those are we need to be people who read the times. You know, Billy Graham used to say, read scripture in one hand and the newspaper in the other. You know, we need to exegete culture by reading the times and seeing these things and saying, where is God at work and what's he joining into that's inviting us to join into? So, deep uh, conviction that food builds a relationship. So, uh, we have forged lifestyles of generous hospitality. It's always mutually transforming. You're no longer strangers after you share a meal. So many practices lean us toward transactional relationships. So about, well, within a year after being there, I started um, soup nights. Um, just started connecting and meeting a few neighbors and then invited them over to soup. You know, it does low barrier. You didn't have to RSVP, you could come late, leave early, you didn't need to bring anything, you could bring anyone in your household. So I did as low barrier as I could. And uh, uh, before COVID, we would have 45 to 55 neighbors um, for a soup night. Um, every decade, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, every year as a kid. Most people, and people have been jazzed about it, it's like, it's good soup, okay, homemade organic gardener here. Um, and maybe someone would make cookies. But it's simple. But, uh, and I have a neighborhood of activists and most people though only gather in their tribes. And so people have been over the top because I think it gives them a taste of what it means to be family. And um, so it was a long, a long process of, and so then after we kind of built enough, um, I, you know, I had to adapt after with COVID and we put a tent in the backyard, a canvas and fire pot and radiant heat and we did outdoor movie nights. And you could, we could have neighbors over, if you, a couple neighbors every night. People were so hungry to connect. And part of it is I had already developed all that social capital. Um, ha Halloween is the biggest holiday in, in our neighborhood, it's dark. We throw in 100 candles and we do hot chocolate. I made 400 
pumpkin cookies and we gave out I think 120 sparklers this year. We did a fire pot at the front and um, any reason to kind of be present and be a blessing to our um, neighborhood. And then seven years ago at the beginning of the Syrian crisis, one neighbor said, what are we gonna do? I think you should kickstart something for the neighborhood. So we organized as a neighborhood, raised 50,000 and welcomed a mother and a 24 year old daughter. And um, Carmen and Hyatt, uh, they lived in the neighborhood. Well, the first year they lived three doors down. The second year they lived with us. It turned out that they're um, Orthodox Christians from Damascus and then they moved across the street now I've got them in a co-op a few blocks away. They're family. They, now we've got another group, um, raised another 70,000, and they then sponsored their extended family. We're just now on our third um, of their extended family. Um, there's lots I could tell you stories about there. They, I, normally when we do soup nights, I don't do a prayer. But after they were here a year, and everybody loved him, you know, and I, that's when I realized people are very hostile to the church. They said absolutely no connection with any Christian organization, but the only way we could have a sponsoring agreement holder was with a Christian organization. So they eventually had to accept that and they kind of started to get a sense that I had connections in all the denominations. And, um, and but I don't usually pray at uh, a soup night, but I will if people come for dinner. But a year after they were, Carmen and Hyatt were here, they, as a thank you, she, you know, Syrians are amazing cooks, and she's a chef. She, and most people hadn't tried any Syrian food, so she put on this huge feast, 80 people. Because once a year we have a big gathering, and sometimes I've done a progressive dinner where appetizers at one place, and then a banjo player, maybe is welcoming them to the porch, and we wow. do a big salmon barbecue, mm -hmm. and then a neighbor who's a historian has them walk through the neighborhood for 30 minutes down to the dessert place. So the, we've done progressive dinners for years. So this year we decided, a year after they were here, that she would throw on a, a Syrian feast for them. Well, I thought, you know, if they were Muslim, I know that my neighbors would accept <clears throat> whatever they did. So I said, their practice is to pray before me. <laughs> so Hyatt prays this very long prayer in Arabic, and Carmen, her daughter, interprets. And it's like, somehow it's okay to pray in Arabic. And people have loved them. And they could see that we had a bond. I got Hyatt a Bible that had English and Arabic, and so we would read every night a chapter in Arabic and a chapter in English, so practice with English. And so, um, so neighbors, like, I think I'm pretty strategic. You can't set that up. You know, what God orchestrated in that, and what that has advanced in people's openness to God, because, you know, Carmen, quite feisty, she's 30 now, um, she was used to being persecuted in Damascus, and someone in their first year said to her, a few people did. I, I didn't know that there was any Christians in Damascus. And Carmen would be, Damascus, it's in the Bible, you know. <laughs> so she, you know, was really bold. And so they would be really bold. And so somehow, because our community is very committed to social justice and inclusion, even though they're very biased against the church, they messed all that up. You can't strategize that. 
God is setting things up even now beyond, way beyond what you can see. That's the life of faith. That you're calling for something that you cannot see, but out of this deep confidence that God is at work aggressively and is for you. And that's the life of faith, to believe that expectantly, breathless expectancy, that God's at work. Um, I said that our neighborhood is the highest concentration of artists, so I've done like about 20, 25 house concerts. I had one um, vineyard pastor, it's fairly close by, he had me kind of preach at his church and about neighborhood connecting, and so he, he had never been, he would do this festival once a year on my street and the parallel street called In the House Festival, and they do 70 acts over a weekend. So I became the favored house to host. And so he had never volunteered. It's amazing. I would, I would show up at every community event. And I often never meet another Christian. You know, just showing up to what's already going on in your neighborhood. That's how I got to know all the, the gatekeepers and leaders in the neighborhood. And so Gordy came to volunteer at a concert at my house. I don't pick the concerts, I just am see. And the first one was fusion hip-hop belly dancers. <laughs> he was a good sport and came back the next night for Celtic bands. <laughs> so uh, I have this, you know, eight foot by 15 foot grass, and that becomes our dance place. Um, this actually, last uh, September, we did a house concert, and I had some friends that are Christians that had part of their band come, and they just played labels. And I have all these 30-somethings right now in the house, so they invited all their friends. And then I had a good amount of neighbors that were my age. And um, so they're, they, she just did an amazing job holding that space, and they're chit-chatting, and, and the 30-year-olds, the you know, I'm always stunned. They want to hang out with old people and are longing to engage. So they loved it. And so many of my neighbors my age said, it's so stimulating to be around young people. They just don't have any interactions. And I'm thinking, come and live with me. <laughs> you know? So um, Augustine was very concerned about the movement of the church toward privatizing everything that the church was not meant, or, or our homes. Our homes weren't meant to be sanctuaries. You think about how suburbia developed. Away from urban styles where the porch on the front, what's now in suburbs? What's the first thing you see when you drive up? A garage. Decks are on the back. What does that say about your values? I think those are kingdom things that we need to push back in, and we need Christians involved in community development and design and architecture. That's, now, they're starting to bring those principles in some new communities because they realize it killed community. You need to be able to walk within things. So Augustine way back could see that, that we need to make our homes more public. So imagine, what if every neighborhood had a vibrant Christian weaving a fabric of care, extending um, love and friendship, like Jesus does, weaving you know, this care and, and communicating in every way that everyone is welcome to the table. Um, 
to localize our faith in our daily life, making it more holistic, all of life, not into departments, to move it out of our heads and Sunday services and into our daily lives. It's really a call to live into the way of Jesus and a way of being the church in our everyday life with people that we don't choose and sometimes don't like. Mm -hmm. But that's what proves that Jesus is a part of your life. That you can love without conditions. You know, I, I say this because you get this 12 years later or as if there's no rough edges now. I'll tell you, the first year living in community, I was pissed every day. I had this really laid back 20 year old Australian sit around playing the guitar and I was still in kind of hyper mode. I was nurtured under five-minute manager, I knew how to use every amount of time, and I had been working nine-hour weeks because I was involved with some stuff with the Olympics. And she would just look at me like, breathe, Jack, you know? <laughs> and every day, of course, she didn't have the same cleaning standards as I did. I don't know what happens. You get older and you need more order. So every morning, dishes in the sink, I'd just be... Tick. And I had, I had determined to say, you know, this is my ship. That I realized how much I loved people conditionally. I'll love you more if you clean up after yourself. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't get that exposed if we're only hanging out for two hours on Sunday. You know, I looked pretty good living alone with a cat. But I used to say in marriage counseling, intimate relationships don't create problems. They reveal things. They hold up the mirror. So if we don't have spaces and context where the messiness of our humanity is exposed, and I show a little bit of myself and see if you run away, and I show a little bit more of myself and you see if I run away, and you have to forgive me, and I have to forgive you, and I see the crud, and I see the grace of God, that's when we really root a deep confidence of God's love in us. And if all we have is a lot of superficial relationships that really never know us, that we're not known, we'll stay insecure and, and unstable in a confidence that we're beloved and that nothing will ever change that. And that enables joy that defies circumstances. We have to find ways to allow deeper, deeper. And I, I was just so dissatisfied with the experience of community that I had in church life that now a lot of it felt like pseudo-community. So I think those are the questions. How do we nurture a sense of real community? Uh, one of the things that sparked my imagination was of, of not just you know having friendships with a few neighbors. We have now like 130 on our email list for our neighborhood that took years, just so you know, to overbuild. But I, I heard of a neighbor, uh, uh, the guru really in Portland, Mark Lakeman, that started the kind of placemaking movement. You know those little neighborhood libraries? That started in Portland. That's placemaking activity, if you've looked at that at all. And I did a year cohort in the city with them. And he has, he has a house in his neighborhood, uh, eight houses. Uh, in a block, no laneway, and it took 17 years, and with his work, that all the neighbors took their fences down. 
I like, there's one neighbor I don't know, I'll take my fence down with. <laughs> and they built in four pathways and they turned all their backyards into common area. One area is a commu community garden, one area is a play area, one's a hot tub. Oh, I'm in, and, and so that was like, oh my gosh, this, this, this is another level. So that's what sparked my imagination, what it takes to create a sense of village. The other is, I don't have any family in the country. And um, so I think about, how are we gonna age in place? I'm right in the middle of the baby boomers. And so I started to dream about what would it take to create enough connection that my neighborhood could function like a functional, healthy, extended family. Yeah. So those are the things that spark my imagination, to say, this is long-term, I'm there for the rest of my life. Uh, it's deep embeddedment, deeply incarnating in, and, and developing relationships, seeking to be <coughs> a faithful presence and where you are, embodying what we believe about God and relationships that we don't choose or have nothing in common with other than our humanity. I think is the way that we prove and deepen our love for God. To love God is to love our neighbors. To be a blessing to God is to be a blessing to our um, neighborhood. Okay, I'm gonna think I'm gonna stop there. And then let's talk. Push back on anything or ask questions or want anything more expanded or Things you're curious about, Karen. You uh, you've been on this journey to redefine what privacy means, mm -hmm. and uh, <clears throat> also vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, so, what does what is privacy and vulnerability becoming now? Okay. Good, good question. Yeah, this, those, that's a good highlight, Kevin, of, of really what does vulnerability and availability look like and how do we heighten those as values. I just listened uh, to something by Brene Brown last week. And if you've heard any of her current material or research on living big, B-I-G, boundaries, integrity, and um, what's the other one? Anybody know? Generosity. Generosity. So um, what she says uh, is that the most compassionate people, the most people that have the, the greatest capacity for generous compassion that can stay true to themselves are the most boundary people. So you need to have boundaries uh, so that you are able to keep your heart free and generous and compassionate. Mm -hmm. So getting clear about that, her material, there's lots of stuff online and videos, really helpful of clarifying that. It's not just learning to say no, it's really out of her research that kind of surprised her. Is that, um, so I need respite. I have times that I go away. They know I go to bed early, so the house has to get quiet after 10, you know? Um, so I'm clear about those boundaries because I'm actually an introvert in how I recover energy. 
And so I need spaces. I need my own hotel room, you know, because I can't be given out and engaging and not having my own space every day. So I've learned, I'm learning continually to ask for what I need, to be aware of that self-aware, and to, to learn those boundaries so that I can keep my heart generous and free and compassionate. Because if I, otherwise, we'll move toward resentment. And if I don't confront, I'll just have a film come across my heart every time you kind of violate, you know, my space or overdo or take more than I can give. So that's my responsibility to be self-aware and to be proactive about what I need and then communicating that. So good, thanks for highlighting that. Anybody else? So how is your hospitality practice funded as a funded? How am I funded? So I raise funds through Mission Canada. Anybody wants to know? It's, I have my name hidden because, just for integrity, for my neighbors, I didn't want my me to be easily searched online. And so um, I'm under Mission Canada, under East Van, my initials KR. So I have people that donate to me, that support me on a monthly basis, that are kind of joining me. And then also, I think workers probably are wise to have other streams of income. So, you know, I can if I need to have a, you know, we operate that those who have help those who don't. So we um, have people pay what they can in terms of contributing to rent. So, you know, there's at times that we say, okay, we need to have a, one room as a fair market value to supplement. Mm -hmm. So I think it's wise to be thinking about other streams of income. You don't have a secular job yourself? No, full time. So be gracious to yourself. I'm doing this full time, still learning. <laughs> and part of it is um, we underestimate how much time it takes. Uh, I think neighbors especially can move to be optional relationships. When, we, when our lives are maxed, it's like we've got our workmates, we've got family, we've got our friendships. Like neighbors fall off because there's no time. They're optional. I don't think they are. I think we need to rethink that. But you need a lot of margin to be present. And it, to have proximity, which I have, uh, and I have room for spontaneity. Your friend says, can I come for tea in an hour? Um, I had a couple, it's been like eight years ago, I was just chatting with him this week, and he was in IT, and he said, Karen, my wife and I are bringing breakfast, we'll be there in an hour, this was on a Saturday morning, because he wanted to tell me that he's thinking of quitting his full-time job and doing full-time neighboring. They decided to move to one income, his wife was a teacher, and that's what he's been doing, out of a deep passion be a good name. He's done amazing. So not clergy, not theologically trained, grown up in the church, loves Jesus, and he's been doing this full time. We've done a lot of things together. So, so people are choosing to live on less income-wise. So shared living helps with that. My best friend moved in nine years ago. She had paid off her condo. She's still working full time in nonprofit. Um, and uh, and then make space. She's already strategizing about retirement that she can give full time. So something is what type of space do you have for your family? For my family? Yes. 
I have no family in the country. So, um, but I have nine nephews and nieces and 15 great nephews and nieces. And I've done fam 10 family weddings officiating. Them. So they've been, my sister kind of intentionally shared parenting with me, her four children. And um, her daughter lived with me when she was in her teens. So they're a major part of my life. Um, so a, a bulk had lived in Seattle. Now half of them are down in San Diego. And uh, I had my nephew and his family up a couple weeks ago. So they come and visit their favorite aunt. Mm -hmm. So um, I think as a single, you, you realize, though, your friendship circle become family. So it's been a while of educating. I always thought I'd marry um, and have kids. But you know, I know that, um, I think we, this is another old topic, but I think we do need to elevate the call, the biblical call of singleness. That I have been available. My family has appreciated my availability as a single. So I, you know, cared for my parents as they uh, declined. Um, so I am accessible and available to. But but they also know I have a, a life and a, a family of friends here. So I I think we were talking about this at lunch that really in history a kinship group which was about 20 25 people was really the norm and it made up relatives and non-relatives. You know, when they talk about the household of faith, that was a kinship group of relatives and non-relatives. So the whole romanticizing of the family and the nuclear family is a, a new concept. It's not biblical. It was always an extended and included the stranger and non-relatives. So I think that's another thing we need to bring a reflection of biblical theology on. I love that you mentioned something that caught my um, attention about the boundaries and vulnerability um, in self-awareness of what you need not to be vulnerable. Is there anything else you could add? You know, I really encourage Brene Brown's work. There's lots online, written material. You know, she's a researcher and she's also a believer, but um, her work is just brilliant, really, around uh, bringing practicalities to this, so how to think about it rightly. Um, and she's so vulnerable in her own journey around this. Uh, it's quite beautiful. So um, it's so a boundary, you know, of learning to establish what you need to do to protect yourself from resentment, mm -hmm. from anger. So proactively thinking about, so I, I've learned, you know, if, if one, you know, I, with my uh, parents didn't have much money, but a little bit that they did have, I rented our kitchen. So it's the only time I've ever rented my kitchen, and I probably ever will. So, you know, it needs to be taken care of because it's got to last the rest of my life. So if somebody is doing something that just, you know, people have lost skills, domestic skills. People don't know how to cook, and lots in my household that, you know, how to set a table and how to swing a hammer. You know, I do all the house repairs. Um, 
I think that's all part of discipleship. Of forming people to, to be more fully human. Hey, it's Kevin again. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to start a nonprofit agency? Uh, many people are gripped with an idea. There is a need in my community and perhaps I can organize, perhaps I can get involved and do something uh, that will bring hope and, and relief and uh, strategy into people's lives. Uh, on our next episode, uh, Dagma Koi, uh, who's an ordained minister, uh, also has uh, been an entrepreneur and started some uh, incredible nonprofit works. And uh, so she's going to be talking to us about how to start um, a uh, nonprofit uh, community agency from scratch. And uh, so that's, that's going to be a, a good session, uh, also recorded at the Our City Toronto Conference. So uh, do come back and uh, listen. If you haven't uh, subscribed to the podcast, uh, you can. Uh, and uh, you can also go back into our library of past uh, episodes. We're in our fourth year, so we're covering a lot of ground from coast to coast in Canada and discovering all kinds of people that are doing great things um, in their city. And uh, who knows, maybe someday uh, we're going to be talking to you about what you're doing in your city. Well, until uh, the next episode, uh, I'm your host, Kevin Rogers, and you're listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. Thank you.